Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Welcome to The Garden's Podcast. This message titled, The Transfiguration, A Journey to the Cross, was given by Darren Roundson and is the 27th in our series, The Kingdom. Okay, hey, I'm back. I'm excited. I'm ready to jump back into Mark. If you are new, um, yeah, you don't have to give me applause. We can give Mark applause. Um, but if, if you are new, we're going through the book of Mark. We're going verse by verse. Um, we started this book in September. Um, and we've had a few interruptions, but we're, we're going to continue this probably through Easter. Um, and we're really just settling, settling into what the text says. We're defining what the kingdom of God is really about. The kingdom of God is the primary message of Jesus Christ. Um, and the kingdom as we've defined it is a sovereign rule of, or reign of God. We talked about the kingdom as the way God, God intended life to be in the first place. A kingdom um, that's marked by healing, peace, wholeness, justice, uh, righteousness, um, forgiveness of sins, life, um, uh, I'm sorry, resurrection, new hearts, new spirits. You remember, these are the conversations we've had over the last year, basically. Um, But we're picking up in Mark chapter 9 this morning. So if you would go to Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Last week, Bill talked about kind of the end of the first section of Mark. 
And this is important. This morning I'm going to do a little more of a Bible study because I think this particular text has a lot of theological input or impact on us. So I just want to give you kind of context and framework. So it's a little more systematic and boring, so forgive me. But uh, it's all right. I think this is part of the journey together. We want to get rooted into this scripture. So Mark is broken up into two chapters. Uh, chap- chap- or, I'm sorry, two sections. Chapter 1 through 8 is the beginning of Mark's gospel. And in that section, we're really trying to define, Mark is trying to define who is Jesus and what is, what is his kingdom like. And so we see that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the eternal king. And his kingdom is one that brings life, forgiveness. It brings healing, freedom, rest, power, and love. All of that is demonstrated, proclaimed, and embodied in the life of Jesus in the first eight chapters of Mark. Are you with me on that? Well, last week it ended where the, the readers of Mark, if you were receiving this as a letter, get this, this letter from, from Mark, um, and, and they, they recognize that this is the moment where, where all of, the, conf, uh, all of the, the defining of who Jesus is comes to a point. And it comes to a point when, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And we saw this last week. So they finally get it. For the first eight chapters, they don't get who Jesus is. Who are they? The disciples. They don't know who he is exactly. And Peter finally says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And as soon as he confesses that, Jesus lets him in on what he's up to. So Peter confesses something, and then Jesus confesses something. He says, yeah, I am the Messiah, and I'm going to the cross. That if you want to follow me, it's not going to be a triumphant following victory march. It's going to be death. It's going to be suffering. It's going to be you with a splintery cross following me with your life. That's what it means for me to be the Messiah. That's what Jesus said last week. And so we looked at a very difficult message for many of us to hear. That that Jesus doesn't come necessarily to fix our lives. He comes to call us to the cross. That as disciples, if we want to embody a life of the kingdom, then we know that it's going to be marked with suffering. It's going to be marked with death. But only when we follow Jesus to the cross will we experience resurrection. And that's the whole point. So the first section ends with this epic confession, with with Jesus confessing his mission. And then what happens after that? Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus because he cannot see the Messiah as that type of Messiah. You see, the Messiah was promised to bring victory over the the, the nation of Israel. They're supposed to conquer all other nations. The Messiah is supposed to to bring um, um, a sword, to bring justice. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to conquer Rome. These are the expectations that that Peter has. He has the expectation that the Messiah would come and he would would set up a kingdom on earth that would destroy all other kingdoms. And when Jesus says, no, I'm going to go to the cross, Jesus is saying, this Messiah is going to be marked by the most humiliating thing you could possibly be marked by. The cross was the worst thing you could ever endure. That, that I'm, I'm going to come, I'm going to bring justice, but I'm going to bring it through a subversive act of defeat that will end up with victory. I'm going to come, I'm going to bring suffering. I'm going to bring a kingdom that is going to be so tangible that you can almost touch it, but it's not like the kingdom you think I'm going to bring. It's going to be a different type of kingdom. It's not freedom from an oppressive government. It's freedom from anything that oppresses anyone anywhere. And I'm going to conquer the real enemy of humanity, sin and death. And so that's what happened last week. That's just kind of bringing us up to speed on what, where we're going. Let me grab my water. Um, 
So that's, that's kind of where we're at. And so now we transition into the second, second section of Mark. Where we're going to go and we're going to learn about what he's about. This is what Jesus has come to do. From this point on, it's, it's Mark writing about Jesus going to the cross. Okay? Are you with me? I need a little more interaction at 9 o'clock. Come on. Thank you. Appreciate that. Go to Mark chapter 9, uh, uh, verse 2. Let's read this together. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud he, he, uh, there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And they, were, uh, and they were coming down the mountain. He ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had, had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. When they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said, Elijah indeed is coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he who is to go through many sufferings and may be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. Okay, what the heck is going on? Has, has anyone read the transfiguration and thought, what is happening here? Why on earth is there a cloud? Is Jesus wearing white garments? Why is, is there a Moses and Elijah, his voice from heaven, this, this thing? It's just the weirdest type of story, especially to have right after Jesus confesses that he's going to the cross. What's happening in the story. And there's something really significant, a theological imperative that we gotta grasp if we wanna continue along this journey. You see, there's, there's certainty that Jesus, of course, is the Messiah, but what this reveals is something far greater than just the Messiah. This reveals something far greater. So let's just dive in. Let's do a little bit of a Bible study and talk about what, what kind of the, the parallels that are going on here. Because um, as I was reading into this, this just makes so much more sense when you, when you discover the parallels that, that this is connected to. Remember, Mark is writing in a way, um, Mark's not writing in a vacuum. When we started the book of Mark, we said that uh, it began with Mark saying that this is the continuation of a long story that's been written, God's story, where God's broken into history through the nation of Israel, where he's broken into history and, and talked about through the prophets, God coming back again and freeing the nation of Israel and humanity. And so this is simply a continuation of another story. And when we read what's happening here, if you were in the first century, if you were Jewish, you would, you would pull out all of these explosive terms coming out. That this, this is so explosive, that this is so theological, everyone would have seen this coming. They're thinking this is a, this is a huge deal. And so as we read this, we've got to recognize that there's so much Old Testament being pulled into this. And so let's just go with the first, the first word, it's, or the first two words. It says six days. Are you with me? Mark ch chapter 9, verse 2, it says six days later. Go to uh, Exodus real quick. Exodus chapter 24. I don't hear any Bibles turning. Do you not have Bibles? Are you getting your phone app? Come on. 
Exodus 24. I just want to, I want us to go there. I want us to touch. I want us to feel. I want us to, to see the parallels in this story because the truth is this. I'm not going to try to convince you of anything today. All I want to do is present to you what's happening and challenge us at the end, okay? That's all I want to do this morning. We, we, we've been, we, it seems like last week's message was so heavy. We could have sat there for an entire month just thinking about the implications of following Jesus to the cross. So I have a, I have a difficult time going through week after week trying to bring us to another place. I just want to present the theological imperatives and then we'll, we'll, we'll land together back into a response. So it says this in Exodus 24, um, verse uh, 16. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Let me just uh, give you quick background. Remember, Exodus is a story of God freeing the nation of Israel. This is, this is a huge deal for the people of Israel when, when God takes them out of the nation of Egypt and makes them their own nation, remember, he, does, he calls them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He calls them to be the type of people that reflect God on earth. And so he takes them away, and, and he brings them to a mountain, and he says, I'm going to meet with you. He gives them the law. He gives them the covenant. But we're going to look at what happens when God meets with the people of Israel. It says in verse uh, 16, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. If you're reading Mark and you understand the Jewish context, you would immediately draw to what's happening on the, tr- the mountain of tra- at Transfiguration right back to Exodus chapter 24. And it says, On the seventh day he called Moses out of a cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up to the mountain. Okay, so just, I just want to point this out. So the glory of the Lord comes down the mountain, and it's there for six days. And then he calls Moses. And it says that um, Moses entered the cloud, and the cloud was the appearance of the glory of the Lord. So we have a cloud, we have a mountain, and we have six days. Can we keep going? So you, you, you with me? Man, maybe it's just me. Maybe I don't feel with myself. Um, so there's immediate connection to the history of Israel. Something significant is happening here. Something, we, we, we just got to grasp that. And so this is where Israel gets their identity. It's where they get their mission. It's where they, they become defined as the people of Israel. When God comes down the mountain, the glory, the cloud, all of that's there. And then let's just continue in Mark. It says that um, they appear before them. Jesus is transformed. He's in white clothes. And uh, here comes Elijah and Moses. What's the significance of Elijah and Moses? Why would these two prophets, among all the prophets, show up? Well, I think one of the things is that they're the most famous of the prophets. If you were collecting prophet baseball cards, those were the two that you wanted, especially their rookie year. And, okay, so you have famous prophets. Both had something to do with deliverance. Okay, so draw the parallel. Moses delivered the nation of Israel from oppressive foreign governments. Okay? Elijah delivered Israel from false gods. Both had encounters with God on mountaintops. Moses goes up and gets the glory of God, gets the Ten Commandments. What does Elijah do? He goes and he fights the prophets of Baal. Both have significant implications for deliverance, for encountering God's presence, for encountering God's glory. Both in the first century Jewish perspective, at some point reflect God's glory to the people of Israel. 
Elijah and Moses were significant players that reflected the glory of God. Moses, when he sees God, he has to put a veil over his face because his face would shine with the presence and the glory of God. If you read Exodus, you see that in Exodus 33. So there's some parallels talking about something to do with deliverance, something to do with the presence of God, something to do with the glory of God. And then Peter says something that just, it seems just out of place. Remember, the chapter before, he called Jesus Messiah. Now he refers back to him as rabbi. He says in verse 5, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings or, or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Peter's there, and it says he was terrified. And it has to do with saying something foolish. But here's, here's what's going on. G, uh, uh, Peter says, hey, <clears throat> let us build a tabernacle in this place. A tabernacle or a dwelling is a place where God's presence would dwell. This is a place where God's tangible presence would reside. And only in the tabernacle or the temple would you, would you see the presence of God manifest itself. And so he, he knows something significant's going on. He sees, he sees Moses and Elijah. He sees, he sees Jesus. And he knows there's something significant. And, and, he, um, and throughout the history of Israel, there's this Old Testament promise that one day God would restore the tabernacle or the temple of Israel and bring his presence once and for all to the people of Israel. Do you remember when we talked about the history of Israel? It starts when, when God fills the temple with his glory in 1 Kings chapter 8. They build a temple for the presence of God. God comes down and his glory fills the tabernacle, fills the temple, and everyone encounters his presence. But what happens? They disobey God. Do you remember this in the Old Testament? They disobey. God destroys the temple through the Babylonians. They're exiled to Babylon. They're in Babylon outside of Israel, and they're, they're waiting, and prophets rise up and say, one day God will come again, and God would restore the temple of, of Israel, and God would once again dwell among his people. His presence will be tangible. His presence will be sought after. There will be once and for all a temple with the presence of God. So here we have Peter built with all of these expectations, all of these hopes of God doing this thing once and for all. And all he can think about is this is going to happen as it was promised. That maybe if you can construct a tabernacle, something that's bounded and safe, where you could have a priest that could um, intercede for you, you can, that can wipe away your sins, you can bring your sacrifices, you can come and commune with God, that, that maybe this is exactly what's happening. So his response is absolutely perfect. This is what you would expect from a first century Jew, someone that knew scripture, of course, God's going to come in as he always does and we're going to build a place for him to dwell and then we're going to go to him and worship him there in that place. That's what he's doing. He's being a good Jew. But then something terrifying happens. Something absolutely terrifying happens. It says that a cloud comes down and covers them, overshadows them. Go to Exodus 33. I promise this will all make sense. Exodus 33. I'm just trying to point the parallels. Um, and where are we? Verse uh, 18, excuse me. 
Again, this is Moses talking to God, and, and uh, Moses was just asked to lead the people of Israel and to, uh, to form the nation. And he already brought the law down, but um, it, it, they destroyed it because they were already rebelling. rebelling. Remember, the people of Israel worshiped the false god. And so Moses is, is talking to God in verse 18. He says, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make, this is God, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, this is God talking to Moses. You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continues, see there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face, will sh- my, uh, but my face shall not be seen. So here's Moses. He's, he's, he's found favor in God. He's seen, he's seen miracles happen. And he asks to see God's presence, God's glory. And God says, yeah. I'll reveal this to you, but here's how it's going to be. I'm going to cover you up with, with my hand under these two rocks, and I'm going to pass by. And once I pass by, you're not going to see my full glory. What you're going to see is the backside of me. What you're going to see is the remnants of what happens after I show my glory. That's all you're going to get to see, because if you see my glory, you will certainly die. Because perfection to God cannot be held with imperfection. So Moses sees the back end of God. He doesn't see his face, but he, he sees a piece of his glory. And what happens after that? Go to Exodus 40. I'm just trying to connect a couple more dots. Exodus 40, verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on, on their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would, set, uh, they would not set out until the day that it was taken out. The people of Israel were marked by the glory and presence of God. It would reveal itself through a cloud. And they would, they would literally move during the time of the wilderness where the cloud would come down and they would settle the camp there. And then when the cloud left, when the glory and the presence of God would leave, they would follow the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is what it meant for them to be the people of God. They were marked by the presence and the glory of Yahweh himself. The cloud symbolized his presence and glory. So do we catch the significance when we go back to the story of Mark, I love this. That we have, we have um, this cloud, the presence of God overshadow Peter, James, and John. And they hear this voice. They would get that this is the presence of God. They would get that this is the glory. And they would probably think, oh crap, I'm going to die. The presence of God comes. And what do they hear? They hear a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. If there's not fireworks going off, if there's not this big rattling and shaking in the story of Mark, then you miss 
everything. This is the absolute most provocative statement throughout the book of Mark. This is where Mark is saying that he's not just the Messiah, he's God. What's happening here is that we see a reassurance that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but that he is God in the flesh. That the revelation of his divine nature is being attested by the disciples. It says in Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will live with them. In, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and lived among us. That word lived is, is the same Greek word for tabernacled, among us. Mark is making a very provocative statement. This isn't just a, a prophet. This isn't just a rabbi. This isn't just the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is God in flesh. He's not pointing to God. He is God. He's not just reflecting God's glory. He is the manifested glory of God. That is Jesus Christ. We don't need a tabernacle to worship. We need Jesus. We don't need to construct something to encounter God. He dwells with us in our midst. That's what's being said. The turning point of Mark is it's not just that he's the Messiah going to the cross. It's that God in flesh is going to the cross on our behalf. That's what the transfiguration is all about. It's a story of connecting the dots all the way to Exodus, where God reveals his glory through a cloud, through Moses, ties the prophet of Elijah, and brings it all to front and center in the, at the climax of Mark, saying this is God on a mission to the cross. This is so provocative. Because this means we're not worshiping Jesus, our Savior. We're worshiping Jesus, God. This means we're not just worshiping Jesus, a great teacher. We're worshiping Jesus as God. This means that some guy on the cross didn't just die for us. God in the flesh died for us. So we didn't have to. And what it's going to challenge all of the disciples to grasp is that who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping a good teacher? Are you worshiping a vending machine God? Are you worshiping Jesus as Lord? Because you can't have both ways. It's either Jesus, God incarnate, God in flesh, or no other God. But I just want to come back because I, this is the point of the whole transfiguration. I, why would this come out of what just was said? Because what just was said was that the disciples were given kind of this, their, the, the sheet was unveiled. The mission of God was just put right before them. And the mission is that Jesus is going to the cross. And if we want, if we want to follow Jesus, we don't, get, we don't get suited up for a throne. We get suited up for a cross. Listen to what God does for the disciples. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Some, some theologians think that this is quite humorous to in, in, insert into the text. That this is almost like God having fun. Because he, it's, some theologians have said that it's as if God's so desperate for the disciples to finally get Jesus that he just blatantly says it. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to what he's about. Listen to him. Do you, do, have, you ever, have you ever got to that point? Where, where something is so serious that, that you just, you're just waiting to hear God's voice in the clouds. I mean, think about what's happening. They're just given a cross call, and now God's saying, yep, that's right, follow that. It was just a, reassur a reassurance that Jesus' mission is the cross. And I don't need to put this on, I don't need to speak about this more and more and more, but you've got to recognize that, that when God speaks, it always moves us to the mission he has. 
When God speaks, it always moves us to the mission he has. If we want to follow Jesus, we don't tell him where to go. We get behind what he says. We lay down our hopes, our own kingdoms, and we follow Jesus where he leads us. This transfiguration is simply the reassurance that the previous confession and the call to follow him is straight to the cross. Now here's, here's kind of my point this morning. All this theological jargon, all this stuff going on, I think it, it makes sense for us if I could just share a story and reveal how maturity and faith looks as we grow in our walk with Christ. The theme throughout the first eight chapters is very clear. We've talked about how silly it is. The disciples don't get Jesus. They don't get who he is. And then they confess it. And after they confess it, they confess it with all of their expectations attached. You're the Messiah. That means I'm grabbing a, I'm, we're going to go take down Rome. We're going to do all these. I'm going to have a throne. That's what Peter's saying. And, G, and P, Jesus reinterprets everything. And so here's what I want to say. Maturity, what does maturity and faith look like? Well, I'm going I'm to share a story of what it doesn't look like, okay? So when I was 19 years old, I heard God say, um, I, heard, I heard a calling, go into pastoral ministry. And that's not exactly what he said. He said something else. But I felt this draw. I felt this inner connection where God was speaking to me. I was a theater major my whole life. I was an actor. I, was, I just transferred from the school. I was going to transfer to another school to be an actor. And, and I heard God say, do this. Now, when you hear God speak, it's just there's something causes you to seek after confirmation. I'm not just going to move off of that, right? I eventually wanted to hear it, make sure I tested it. So I ended up meeting with a guy named Bill Doctrum, our other teaching pastor, when I was 19. And he tried to convince me for a year that I was not called to pastoral ministry, which was really good. It tested the calling. But I came to the point where that became significant. I said, yep, I listened to that voice. I changed majors. I changed the direction of my life. And I followed him that way. Later on the journey, I was 21 years old. I just graduated college. I was looking for a pastoring job because that's what you do when you graduate seminary stuff. And um, to my surprise and to my shock and horror, no one wanted to hire me. I was working at a church as a volunteer. They said I wasn't qualified for the full-time position that I was volunteering in. It was just absolutely terrible. 17 different applications all over the states trying to get hired as a pastor. And I began to question the original word I heard. I began to doubt that I was good enough. I began to be insecure that I should be a pastor. I'm not, I'm not going to get hired. I'm not called to this anymore. And, and along that time, I, I got engaged to my wife. And uh, as a way to pay off our, her ring, uh, the, the jeweler, which was a family friend, he, he um, offered me a job to work with him. So I started off like once a week. It quickly grew to a full-time thing. And within four months, he was offering me a full-time position as a jeweler. I was flying to New York. I was going to LA with millions of dollars of jewelry. I was rewriting his business. It was absolutely amazing. He was buying me clothes at Nordstrom's. I was like stoked. I was looking at, you know, Best Life magazine. I was just caught up in what God had provided, right? At the same time, he, uh, this jeweler offers me a full-time position, part ownership. He just, he's like, he's, he gave me this amazing deal. He's like, I want you to, to do this with me. I was offered this position at Rock Harbor Church to be uh, an outbound missionary role where I'd be hired for two years, basically as a glorified intern, to be sent out. They didn't talk about pay. They didn't talk about what my role would look like. It was the most ambiguous job I've ever seen. And, but it was for a church. And I was offered it, in the same week, right before, Chris, uh, right before January 2007. Okay, so there I was, 
and what had become, I knew I was called to ministry, but now I was saying, well, I could do ministry as a jeweler. I could support the church. I could pastor on the side. I would, I, I, it was amazing. I was going to get married, so I'm like, this provided health insurance. This provided a better, a better um, financial commitment or a provision. This provided more opportunity to travel. It provided more Apple products. It provided all these things <laughs> that I was passionate about. How many of us have been there? And there was a job. Two years. Don't know how much it's going to make. I'll only be there for two years. One thing's for certain about this job, I have to leave after that. I was getting married that year. I didn't know what provision looked like. So here's, here's what immaturity looks like. Lord, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Will you give me an answer? So I began to pray. It took a couple weeks to decide. And throughout those two weeks, I brought it to friends. My friends were split down the middle. Some would say, do the jewelry thing. Some would say, be a pastor. My, my fiance at the time was like, Darren, just do whatever you want. I don't care if we follow God in the pastoral world or if you do it as a jewelry. I, I didn't have an answer. But then I get a call out of the blue from my, my father, soon-to-be father-in-law. And he says to me, Darren, I need to talk to you. I'm hearing some bad things. I'm like, okay, uh, what's going on? He's like, what do you think every father wants for their, their child? I'm like, provision, um, commitment, uh, I don't know, tell me, Rob. He's like, Darren, I want you to be obedient to God. You're called to ministry. You're not called, I don't care if you have no money, you're called to be a pastor. He spoke so profoundly into my life that it didn't do anything. I wanted a sign from God himself. How many of us have been there? I had four or five people telling me, do the ministry job. I had this tension like, yes, I know, but provision, this, that, you name it. Th that looks so much more prosperous than this calling. God, seriously, can't you do, just tell me what it is. I was looking in the sky. I was, I was opening fortune cookies. How many of us were there? But here's how serious God took it. And this is rare, and this is immaturity. I said, God, I'm going to meet with you. And I went to my favorite spot, Newport Beach. I was living in Newport. I went to the pier. And I, I walk up to the pier, and I said, God, I, I just need an answer. You need to tell me. I'm journaling like crazy. I'm like, you, I'm doing the Venn diagram, pros and cons, and la da 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 Just give me an answer. Give me an answer. It's windy. I'm getting cold. And these two blonde girls, probably 16 years old, come up to me. And they said, hey, we're at the pier praying for people. And we heard God say this, and take it for what it is. You're supposed to take the job at the church and walked away. Sometimes we're so distracted that we can't hear the answer from God, the voice of God through our neighbor. That we can't hear the answer from our closest relatives. That we can't hear God in the still small voice deep in our heart. We haven't been trained to hear God. That he has to wake us up like a transfiguration to get us to the point that we're going to the cross. That's the point. Maturity looks like my wife, and, and I say that in all honesty. There was a time when she was in college, and here's just the exact opposite. <laughs> She's sitting in worship. Uh, at Rock Harbor one day, and she's just worshiping God in her heart, and, and she's, you know, singing songs, but she, she hears God say, stop working. Now, if you know my wife, this is like being called to Africa, for those of us that don't like Africa. This is like, for someone that has been conditioned since childhood to save, 
to budget, to provide for herself, to be responsible, to live on what you produce. This was a call to something that she had, she had so, this would have raised, this raised so much anxiety, fear, doubt. God, are you sure you're going to provide? God, I, I got I to gotta go to school. I got to pay rent, all of this. But she heard the still small voice of God say, quit working. And in her, in her own quieted heart, she quit work that day. And she learned in a season of a couple of months that God would provide for her, that God is trustworthy, that God would, would actually give her more money through that season where things would just fall into, to fall into line. But you see, maturity in faith is getting to the point where we could sit and encounter and worship and simply hear the voice of God, where we can be walking on the street paddleboarding and recognize the voice of God calling us his beloved, where we can open up our hearts for direction and hear it through a friend not through a sign in the sky. The transfiguration, guys, is simply this. It was an encounter in worship, and it was for James, Peter, and John to be caught up in a bigger story, a story that had less to do with their expectations and more to do with what God wanted for them, a journey to the cross. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, I think that we... When we come to worship, we're holding on our, our pain, our suffering, our hopes, our desires, our expectation, our kingdoms, our wallets, everything, even the way we sound and when we come to worship. And what happens is if we're, we're trained to hear God's voice, everything else is released and we follow God with our lives. When I heard God say through a 16-year-old blonde girl, take the church job, I took the church job. All the fear, the insecurities, the doubts, all the questioning of provision was released when God simply spoke a truth into my life. So, two questions. How many of us are able to hear God's voice? How many of us are able to hear the voice of God? How many of us have been trained in that? And how many of us worship the transfigured Jesus? The Jesus that's God. Because my challenge is, I think many of us worship Jesus as Savior, the guy that saves us from my stuff. We worship Jesus as a friend, the one that's comforting us along the way. We worship him as the absentee landlord. You know, as long as I take care of it and keep things nice and neat, once he comes back, then it will all, go, it will all be figured out. We worship the crusader, the guy that's supposed to defeat all of our enemies. We worship the vending machine, the God that gives us what we want. We worship the stamp of approval, and I hate this one. It's the one that just says, God, just bless what I'm already doing in your name. Rather than surrendering our kingdoms, our expectations, our ways, to God. We come to a place where we worship Jesus for who he really is. Not what we want to make him, but we worship him as Lord. And we find his mission to pick up a cross and to follow him. We drop our agendas and we worship. Can we do that? We uh, are changing our liturgy just a little bit, our, our flow, the way we want to really encounter God from now on. Just for a couple of months, we want to experiment. You know, it's, it's really easy for us, I think, as the people of God, to condition response. Let me explain how that works. We hear a word like this, and then we're given worship music, and we drown out the response that God calls us to. Sometimes. It's much easier to sit quietly and, and sing songs than it is to examine our heart than to actually step out and follow Jesus, to be transformed. 
And so here's what I want to do. We have just a few moments. Um, I'm just going to ask everyone to stand. We're going to have the, uh, Jamie come up. He's just going to play some music for us. But I just wanted us to wait on God. I have a sense that some of us, if you're willing to be um, courageous and come forward and get prayer, I would love for that to happen. But if not, it's okay. But this is how we're going to, we're just going to practice connecting with God today this way. So let's just close our eyes. Try to eliminate distractions. And we're just, if, if you're comfortable, hold your hands out in a posture of just waiting. This is just for us in the church, a, a way just to wait on God and say, I'm here, I'm open to you. So if you're open, just hold your hands out in a posture of receiving. And I just want to do this. I want to invite you just to wait. And in your own heart, would you just pray this prayer? Lord, Holy Spirit, would you fill me again with your presence? So often, all God needs is a little bit of space to speak, a little bit of silence to have a word. And I'm just committed now just to give God as much space as He wants as a church. So Holy Spirit, we just invite Your presence. Just fill us this morning. This is what I want to do. You could just keep your eyes closed. I think um, as I was speaking, God was stirring in some of you that you were reminded of a word God spoke to you. Maybe it's a direction in life. Maybe it's a calling. Maybe it's just a reminder. But somehow that just popped up in your heart and in your mind. I just want to have you come forward. We just want to pray. We'll, we'll have everyone come forward in a second. But if that's you, would you just come forward to the front and we'll just pray. We, just want to, we have a prayer team that will come around you and pray for you. So if, if you would be so bold and courageous... And be willing to risk being seen as someone that God spoke to this morning. That would be really helpful. So just come forward real quick. Thank you. We'll just stand right here and just keep a posture of openness to God. Just all the way in the front. We'll just come right here. And just hold your hands out. We'll just keep... Thank you. I just want to just hold that for one minute. Maybe God just affirmed something about you that you needed affirming. Would you just come forward? And the point of this is just that we're learning how to respond to God when he's speaking. Great. Thank you, guys. And uh, if you're standing, I just... This is a time where we're just going to pray for the people up in front. So would you just allow yourselves just to invite the Holy Spirit. Would you worship Him with your own words and your own heart? We're just going to spend some time as a prayer team praying for these people. So if you're on the prayer team, would you just come forward? We just want to pray. And this is our, our model of prayer. And, and if you want to be on your, our prayer team, this is what it takes. You believe in Jesus and you have a pulse. And when you pray, this is what you pray. Lord, bless what you're doing. Thank you, Lord. More of you. Bless what you're doing. Thank you, Jesus. More. Because we don't want to get in the way of God moving through our words. So this morning, we just want to bless what God's already doing in the hearts of people. So if you feel comfortable where you can pray that type of prayer, would, would you just come forward and put a hand on these people? And we'll just continue to worship this way. Um, we, we say in our church that we are all participants. 
So when we come, we don't just expect to entertain you. We expect you to participate. So feel comfortable to connect with God. We're going to pray and we'll close out in just a few moments, okay? So if I could get some prayer team to begin to pray, that would be really good. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear other messages from the Garden, or if you would like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org. Well